You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome everybody at home watching online, too. We're so glad you're tuning in with us right now as we are in the middle of this series called Compelled. And the whole purpose of Compelled is there are these things that are driving us in life, and we want to figure out what they are. We want to build on them. And as Christians, there's something very specific that's driving us. So if you're tuning in for the first time, you may not know the answer to that yet. We'll get to that in just a minute. I read this past week, I think it was my friend Nate Mishler who always shares funny memes on Facebook. I think it was him who shared this meme. And it said, water is an essential element for life because water makes coffee. (laughs) Now, how many of you can relate with that? Any caffeine drinkers in here in this room? Lots of you raise your hand. Now, when you start getting into caffeine, a lot of people have different favorite choices. Some of you prefer the soda route, whether it's a Coke or a Mountain Dew or what I call the nectar of heaven, Diet Dr. Pepper. But once you mature, you finally move beyond childish things like soda, right? And you get into more adult kinds of things like coffee. Now, when it comes to coffee, Everybody is compelled to have a different preference. Some of you prefer something called a crystal. Any coffee crystal drinkers in here? You like Folgers? Anybody? What exactly is a crystal? I ran into somebody here once who told me the best coffee on the market was Folgers. I said, we need to get you out more. But (laughs) some of you do get very, very passionate about your caffeine choices. Like, how many of you would prefer a great Starbucks? Any Starbucks drinkers in here at home? Yes, a few of you prefer this burnt-tasting stuff. Yes, that would be you. Some of you are honest, though. You don't really like that. You prefer this guy here. Anybody? Dunkin' Donuts? Let's be honest. You're going here and getting a coffee. You're not going here for the coffee. Honey, I got to get my coffee and 12 donuts. It's not my fault. I need coffee in the morning. But some of you are like, why would I waste money on all of that when I can simply get a great gas station. Yay. One guy in the back. Yes, Lord. Preach it, brother. There we go. Speedway or wherever your gas station of preference is. I went to Speedway to get this stuff this morning and it blew my mind because they don't have drip coffee anymore. They got a machine that grinds it and puts it out for you. I'm like, even Speedway is now Starbucks. So there you go. Whatever you want to do with that. And then of course, if some of you have graduated and beyond that and you're finally adult enough to admit, I actually don't like the taste of this stuff without 18 pounds of sugar in it. You decide to go on to something more like an energy drink, right? I mean, this would be my favorite right here, cotton candy, bang. Like, you know, if you are needing to uh, take on the entire world in an hour, this is a phenomenal option. (laughs) Or if you have three little boys. Either way, this is the way to go. But isn't it funny how passionate we get about this stuff? Like, I literally have been a part of conversations where people start arguing about these, about which one is the best option. One of my friends will tell you why these are better than all the other energy drinks out there because the things that are in them, they're all natural and what they do to your body and how much better they are for you. And he is very passionate about his brand. It's amazing. We get passionate about a lot of brands, don't we? Nike or Adidas. I mean, if you're into the sports world, right? Like Under Armour, well, they're kind of tanking at the moment. We're losing passion there. But back in the day, at one point, it was Reebok. But sometimes it comes into shoes, right? Is it New Balance? Is it Nike? What about clothing? 
You know, is it Lucky Brand? Is it maybe Calvin Klein? I don't know much about women's clothes, sorry. We've got these things and they compel us and they drive us and we're passionate about them. And in fact, if we're going to go invest our life in them, we want that one, that brand, that thing, because somewhere along the way, we've come to believe in them. We trust them. We lean into them. So we'll spend money on that because we know about it. We've invested our life in it to where if we're sitting around the water cooler having a conversation with somebody, we're really, really passionate about it. So in life, in general, will Nike be around 100 years from now? Maybe. Possibly. Probably. Don't know. I know most of us, the things that we buy today didn't exist 100 years ago. So what is actually compelling us that will be around 100 years from now or 200 years from now or 1,000 years from now? There's this guy in the Bible. His name is Paul. Many of you have heard of him. You've been here for any length of time. You've heard about Paul. And Paul became uh, passionate that one thing would drive him. One thing would compel him. We've used these for the beginning of each of the messages, but here's his words in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, Christ's love compels us that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So what is compelling Paul? It is love. Love. Now, in ancient Greece, in ancient Greek, in Jesus' days, there, Jesus' day, days, either way, there were four kinds of love that were talked about. And those four loves each had a very specific meaning and implication. And the problem with the English language is we only have one word for love. And so we lump all these things that the Greek people identified as four different kinds of love into one category, love. For instance, there's a Greek word, eros, and it means like um, intimate love between two lovers. I'll keep it general because I know there's kids possibly tuning in at home online. So there's this love like between a husband and a wife, and it's defined as like eros, something that happens on their wedding night. Then there's something called phileo, which is like this, the brotherly love. It's where we get the word city of Philadelphia, right? The city of supposedly brotherly love. But that's the idea, right? That there's these uh, love that's like fam familial almost. And then there's um, <coughs> something called storge. And it would be this idea of, it's, this one's a little bit harder to put, wrap your head around, but it's kind of like a friendship love, if you will. It's not like a love between a brother and a sister. It's like a friendship kind of love. You know that person you know who's like that go-to person? You love them. They may be a male or female. You grow up with them. They're your best friend in the world. It's that kind of love. But then there's something called agape. And what's interesting is, at least what I have been taught, is that in Jesus' day, the word agape was around, but it didn't have a lot of meaning. There's not a lot of writing on it. So when the biblical authors come along, they kind of take the word and they give it meaning. They start applying it to the love of God for his people. And every time they speak of Jesus, they speak of agape. And so they're the ones in many ways who gave meaning to the concept of agape. Now, most of you in this room who have grown up in church, those of you watching at home online, you've had any experience, you've heard about God's agape love. But the irony is that word didn't have a lot of meaning in their day until they gave it meaning. And they started to define agape as the self-sacrificing, all-encompassing love of God. The self-sacrificing concept is what Paul is getting here when he says, it's Christ's agape that compels us. 
that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, where did Paul get this? There's a debate that I literally just learned about this week, so I know this much about the debate. But scholars love to study and learn and debate things, and then sometimes we read about them later on down the line, and most of us read about them and go, who cares? This is kind of one of those. But there is a debate as to whether Paul was alive when Jesus was alive, or, or like well, not just alive, but whether he was actually before Jesus, older than Jesus, or whether he was born somewhere along the way, and so he was younger than Jesus. We don't know what interaction Paul had with Jesus before Jesus died. We don't really know anything about that. We only know that after Jesus died, Paul is going around, again, at that point, he's Saul, and he's killing people because he's compelled to make this Christianity thing go away. He's compelled to honor God, to please God, and the way he he acts by killing and arresting Christians, making it stop. But then somewhere along the way, he met Jesus. And he starts to talk about Christ's love compelling. And you go, huh, well, what did he learn? What did he hear about God's love? And here we see that actually Paul is building on something that is the staple of the entire Christian movement. So if you're just visiting with us, whether at home or online or here in the room, if you're visiting with us right here, Christ love, love, agape, is the root of everything that we are supposed to do. That is supposed to be what is fueling us, compelling us. That is supposed to be what our conversations are always about. How do I know? Because Jesus has approached at one point, he's asked this question, what is the most important thing that we ought to do? Of all of the Old Testament laws and rules and commands, what is the most important thing we ought to do? And Jesus narrows it down to two things. He says, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, before we go any further, because if you've been in any church circle for very long, you already know this second part, but we'll get there. But this was so crucial that even when Jesus didn't use this exact phrase, he used other phrases that pointed back to it. Some of them are even more offensive. For instance, Jesus said something as crazy as, you need to love me more than you love your spouse, your parents, your kids, your friends, your jobs, or anything else. In fact, you need to hate them in comparison to how much you love me. I thought hate was the opposite of love. Well, it is if this is all that Jesus had said. If all Jesus ever said was, love me this much. And see, what happens today is we take that and we go, hmm, that's a very egotistical God that you serve. Oh, no. See, in short, we can argue about whose coffee tastes better. We can argue about whose coffee gives us a better rush. But we can't argue about whether or not Jesus is God. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of people, and maybe even some of you, who don't believe that Jesus is God. And so for you, we need to have a hard conversation. And maybe many, many, many conversations about that. But Jesus knows the truth of that statement. And if you know that you are God, and if you know that you created the entire universe, as John chapter 1 tells us about Jesus... And if you know that you're going to die on a cross and raise from the dead to bring the entire world to yourself, if you know you're the only way to heaven, the only way back to God, if you know that, then to give away what we call God's glory to anybody else would be to fail them. It wouldn't be loving at all. 
Is it loving if somebody is absolutely wasted? They've had way too much alcohol. And you're sitting with them at a restaurant, and you can see they can't even get up and walk. And you've got their keys because you had them on the table. Would it be loving for you to hand them those keys? No. Why? Because you'd be denying the truth about the situation. This is the most loving thing that Jesus can possibly say to you and to me. And all the other things that he says, some of which are offensive. Put me first above anything else and all else puts me first. But then he quickly follows up. In the very next verse, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Why is that relevant? Because Jesus is giving us a priority to life. He's letting us know that if we really want to love God, we will have to love others. And then he showed us the way. This self-sacrificing life, this agape love that he would lay out the path and then say, anybody who wants to follow after me, this is what it means to love. This is what it means to be like me. This is what it means to agape. This is what it means to serve God, to actually love other people. And that's where it gets really hard and messy. Because I'll just be honest, it's really easy to love a God who sacrifices for you. It's really hard to love a God who sacrifices for you when it means sacrificing for others. Because all those other people, have you ever noticed how messed up they are? Have you ever noticed how messed up your parents and your kids and your spouse and your neighbors and your boss and your enemies even? Have you ever noticed how messed up they are? I mean, if only everybody could be just like me. That ought to be a sermon series we do sometime. If only everybody could be just like me. I think it was John Ortberg who wrote a book called Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. Yes. Therein lies the problem, right? It gets messy when my life starts interacting with your life and all of a sudden I get to see all of your glorious mess. And so what most of us do, because it's way easier to do this, is we stay safe. We stay out of the mess. Now imagine with me for a minute that Jesus stayed out of the mess. Where would we be today? Imagine Jesus hadn't given up the comforts of heaven and to come down here to earth. Imagine he hadn't risked it all. Imagine he never decided to get hungry or tired or have no place to lay his head and sleep on a rock outside of the dirt. Imagine he never had to carry a sword with him in order just to have some sense of safety from the thieves and the criminals. Imagine he never had to ride on a donkey or step in the messes that donkeys make. Imagine he never had to go to a cross. But he did it all out of love. It's hard to say you love God if you are not loving your neighbor. But it brings up a great question, who is my neighbor? And that was actually the root of the very question that Jesus has asked in Mark chapter 12 and also when we hear about it in all the other places in Luke and Matthew. The whole idea here is everybody wants to justify themselves. Well, who is my neighbor? I mean, my neighbors, some of them are really, really great people. I love my neighbors. One of my neighbors last year when um, my father-in-law was passing away, man, he came over, they, they, they took care of our trash, they cut our grass, and it was like, these neighbors, they're easy to love. They bring us cookies, they bake goods, they're just great people. Like, we offer to do stuff for them, but they have family to live five houses down. They're like, no, we got them. Like, these are great people. They serve us, they don't want anything in return. If only the whole world were like that. 
then I got other neighbors. I don't know them real well. And lately, God has been convicting me. Can I really say I love my neighbors when I drive past this person's house and I'm frustrated about how high their weeds are? But I don't ever knock on the door and say, hey, you need help. You doing okay? Or when they stay up really late playing their music and I just want my kids to be in bed and asleep so I can have time with my wife. Or they set off fireworks on July 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th. And in my heart, I'm judging them. But Jesus says, love them. And the list could go on and on and on, right? Had a neighbor when I was a kid growing up who got mad because I cut two inches into his yard and he started cussing me out. But Jesus says, love them. Love them. What does that mean? Well, these two concepts so informed us as a church that we actually just built, went ahead and built what we call our core values out of them. So we have three core values. I just want to hit them quickly because I got a lot more to say, basically 12 minutes to say it. So here we go. Number one, we, we're a church that wants to love God. There is literally no way I could flesh out all of the ways that we love God. I can't, there's just too many. The Bible's full of them. That's why it takes a lifetime to process this. But here's a few that I think are really, really important. Number one, this is why we worship. The word worship literally means worth-ship, to ascribe worth to something. So if we're willing to fight about whether or not this is the best coffee brand, are we willing to show up and praise God for all that he has done? If we don't realize that everything we have is a gift from him, that literally we would have nothing. We wouldn't have life. We wouldn't have clothes. We wouldn't have a house. We wouldn't have a car. We wouldn't have anything if it weren't for him. Then it's easy to selfishly kind of go into ourselves. But when we realize everything we have is a gift from him, then we, we want to give worth, ascribe worth. It's called worship, worthship. I know some of you aren't singers. Like maybe alone in your car where nobody else can hear, but they show up with other people and they can hear. But the reason we sing is not just because it's the setup to the sermon. Nowhere in scripture are we told that worship is to set you up so that somebody could teach you God's word. Worship, the singing portion, is about ascribing to God his value. Not because God needs you to do that, but because he enjoys you doing that. Because he likes hearing you say, thank you, God, for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. There's some other things we do to love God. Uh, we dedicate to his word and his ways. I assume, for me, Matt Nickerson, and so I would assume maybe for you too, um, that I am not yet exactly like Jesus and that there are things that God wants to teach me and reveal to me. And so I open up God's word so that those things can be shown to me. And sometimes these annoying habits in my life that I think I have wrestled down and then I read God's word and he convicts me like this one. I've been reading love God and love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself and actually reading a book right now with our staff and elders on that very subject so that we could do it as a church next year. And I'm just feeling convicted by God that I'm not practicing it real well. And so I feel convicted because I want to be faithful to Jesus. I want to please him. And so I read his word because I assume I'm dedicated, but I want to know what is pleasing to him. And what I also assume is if he were to unveil to me all of the things in my life that probably need to shape a shift to be more like Jesus, I couldn't hand them all at once. So he gives them to me in daily bread. He gives them to me in little nuggets so that each moment and each day and each season, no matter what my family's facing or what the church is facing or whatever's going on in the world, he's there to feed me, to grow me, to challenge me because he loves me. But I need that because I love him. And just some other things I wrote down, like, uh, it's really, at the end of the day, if you want to understand what it means to love God, it's all about relationship. It's all about relationship. It's all about walking with him, learning to walk with him, and imagining that he really is, not imagining like, oh, you're faking it, fantasizing about it. No, no, no. That you are picturing he is actually your father and your friend. 
And that's exactly what Jesus says about him. He is your father and he is your friend. So he loves you like a great dad. He provides for you like a great dad, but he wants to counsel you and give you wisdom like a great dad also. But the second thing that comes out of that is we say we want to not just love God, we want to love each other, each other. And that is the body, the church, that is us. This, I just wrote down some things. Again, it would take a lifetime to write down all the things that are encompassed in this. But that means care. You ever get sick or go into the hospital and no one was there? What a tragedy. The whole thing that we are doing here called church is supposed to be a family. That when you have a need, I show up and meet it. But not just me. See, here's part of the problem. If you came from a small church background, if you're watching at home, you come from a smaller church background. A lot of times, small church backgrounds, pastors work 60 to 80 hour weeks meeting in everybody's home, visiting everybody in the hospital, <coughs> excuse me, leading every small group Bible study, doing every wedding and every funeral and every message and every sermon. They're the expert and they've paid him to do all those things for them. And I'll tell you right now, the average pastor can effectively minister to about 25 to 50 people that way if that's what you're looking for. But if what you're looking for is to be a part of a community of people who say, when you have a need, I'll be there. I will love you. But also, not afraid, when you're taking advantage of them, to say, look, I love you and I'll meet every need you have, but it's time for you to get a job. It's not my job to pay your rent every month. Bible's clear on that. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. That comes Old and New Testament. The point is, when we get into family together, we start loving each other the same way we love ourselves, we start doing things. The, new, the early church, they so bought into this principle that families would take turns fasting to feed those who were being persecuted and had no resources. So my family literally might not eat for a day so that we could take our day's meals and give them to this family, and the next day, another family in the church would do the same thing so that they could eat. But the goal was to get them back on their feet, get them reestablished, get them a job, get them healthy again. And it so radically changed the world that by about middle of 300s, over 50% of Rome is Christian. What about fellowship? The, the church is supposed to be the place where not only do I get care, but I actually enjoy being with other people. We laugh together. Sometimes guys go out and play basketball or go to top golf or whatever it might be. Sometimes girls get together and they hang out or watch movies or play cards or go shopping or go to top golf or play basketball or whatever it might be. <laughs> but the point is that we actually enjoy being together. That's part of the reason we're putting this movie night on. We just want to gather together, and we want the community to come, but we just want to be together. But then there's also something else missing. And see, I want to cast a vision for you. See, in that smaller place, in that, that place where I'm surrendered to some people who are surrendered to me, I'm supposed to be living my life on mission. And there's supposed to be accountability. I mean, imagine a world where you have somebody in your life actually willing to call you out on some junk in your life. That's not fun. That's not pleasant. I've had a number of people in this church um, confront me in very Christ-honoring ways. Usually it involves one of these things. And they've come to me and said, Matt, I love you. I don't think you realize um, how this thing you did felt. I don't think you realized but it hurt, or it was offensive, or I know somebody. And it's been a number of anything from really silly things that in my head I went, that's silly, but okay. And two other things I thought, okay, that's pretty serious, and I'm so sorry. But I'm so thankful that I'm a part of a body of people who say, we understand that our pastor isn't perfect, but we also 
are going to call him to live for Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that, my heart hurts for you. My heart hurts for you. Because if all you have to do is live up to the standard of yourself, you'll hit it every time. But then there's a third one, and that is to love the world. In essence, when Jesus died on the Christ, he, the Christ, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't do that just for you. I know we were, most of us who grew up in the church in the, uh, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s, we were told a lie that if you were the only person in the history of the world to receive Jesus, Jesus still would have died for you. But the reality is by the time you showed up on the scene, Jesus already died for untold millions of people. So that already wasn't true. And I get it. The point of that was to individualize what Jesus did and let you know that God loves you. And that's a great thing. And you need it and I need it. We've already talked about it. But the reality is Jesus died for a church, for a gathering, for a body, for ecclesia. He didn't die for an individual. He died for a group of people that he knew to the ends of the earth. And there are more of them yet that need him. There are more of them yet who have to have that hope or they're gonna be separated from this kind of care and love and fellowship and life that the church is supposed to bring and to breathe into us. Man, I have so much more I want to show you and my clock is ticking and I wish there weren't one. And some of you are like, don't worry about a clock, Pastor. I know, but we gotta get everybody out of here so we can clean this place so the next group can come in. So I'm going to do the best that I can to make this as clear as I can very quickly. Shortly after Jesus dies on the cross and he raises from the dead, he says to the disciples, I'm gonna fill you with power from on high. And they go and they wait in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes down like fire out of heaven and he lands upon each of the disciples. And Peter stands up on a day called Pentecost. And we talked about this last week and he starts preaching boldly. The church has not yet fully begun. I mean, it's kind of begun, it's not really begun. The church is about to begun. I know that's bad English. It's about to take off. It's about to be fueled like caffeine you've never seen. And here is what it looks like in Acts chapter two, verse 42. It says this early gathering of people, there's a little over 3,000 of them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Do you hear how love God, love others, love the world is in here? To fellowship, to the breaking of bread, that's communion, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every day? I don't have time for that. What would drive them to do that every day? Christ's love. Now, did that last? No. But at their early days, they were so overwhelmed by Christ's love. They're like, we don't care. We just can't wait to be with these other people. Every day they met together in the temple courts. Not only did they do that, that was like the Hebrew temple, then they would break bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And I want you to focus on that. We're gonna come back to that in just a moment. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to the number daily those who are being saved. Do you hear it? Love God, love each other, love the world. Love God, love each other, love the world. Love God, love each other, love the world. You just keep saying it, saying it, saying it. This was such a powerful thing. I actually saw this this week at a, at a, a discipleship website that I'm a part of, and I went, I, I need to share this with my people. So from this moment on, the church basically gathers in the temple, and everybody's together, and they're just, you know, doing their temple thing, and, but then they go home, like, they're enjoying the fellowship and the sharing, like, what's God doing you? What's God doing you? But then, like, the persecution gets great in Jerusalem, and the, the, the Christians, early Christians, most of them leave, and they scatter in order to stay alive. Some of them stay there in the city to continue to minister there, but many of them scatter to the ends of the earth, and this is 
God's way, in my opinion, of starting the missionary movement because he told them to go be my witnesses. They're like, oh, this is great. We're going to stay here. And have you ever noticed churches love to do that? We kind of love to get together and we hang out, but then Jesus has to like blow us up somehow, make us go love the world again. And remember, it's all these things and it's hard and it's messy. And sometimes it's learning to say goodbye to people you love, but it has to be done so that the world can know because we got eternity to be together. And it's all this stuff. It's hard. It's messy. But here's how it looked in the early church. So as these churches would form, guess where they would start to gather? As they were kicked out of the temple, they would start to gather in people's homes. Here's just a list. I don't even know if this is an exhaustive list. It's just a list that I saw and I borrowed from somebody else. Ready? So in Acts 2.46, they went from house to house. 5.42, house to house. 8.3, house after house. 16.40, I think I did the wrong. 10.27, Cornelius' house. 12.12, Mary's house. 16.32, the jailer's house. 16.40, Lydia's house. Acts 18.17, Titius Justice's house. I don't know how you say that. Acts 20, 20, house to house. Romans 16, 5, Priscilla's and Aquila's house. Again, Corinthians 16, 19, Priscilla and Aquila's house. Colossians 4, 15, Nympha's house. Philemon 1, 2, Philemon's house. Do you see it? Where are they meeting over and over and over and over again? In massive buildings with tons of land. No, where are they meeting? In a house, right? You got it. Why is that powerful? Because there's things that you can do in a circle that you can't do in a row. You know what that means? See, in a circle, I gotta look you in the face and you gotta look me in the face and I say, hey, how are you doing? And you could fake it for a little while, but sooner or later, you're gonna feel safe enough to be honest and then they're gonna say, how could I pray for you? And you're gonna say, hey, would you pray for my marriage? Would you pray for my kids? Would you pray for my job? And all of a sudden, the church is not just about coming and watching. It's about taking part in the love of family. And I desperately want that for you. I desperately want that for you because I wouldn't be the man I am today without circles in my life. So what about you? I want to share a passage and I have uh, more of this passage to share than I probably have time for. So I'm gonna do a lot less teaching. I'm just gonna read it and the Holy Spirit, we're asking you to come into this place and speak some things that I don't have time for right now. But there's some people in the, in, in the Bible um, and they're struggling because the persecution has become so great. This, the pain has become so great that they're, they're walking away from Jesus. And many of them are Jewish. They're Hebrew. And so they're going back to the old ways. And the entire book of Hebrews was written to say, where are you gonna go? What, what high priest is greater than Jesus? What sacrifice is greater than Jesus? What, where are you gonna go? Are the angels greater than Jesus? Was Moses greater than Jesus? Was Abraham greater than Jesus? The entire book of Hebrews could be summarized as Jesus is greater. And then he just goes through the entire Old Testament and says he's greater, he's greater, he's greater. And then he says all these things are shadows. All these things were to point us to him. Now with that in mind, I'm just gonna read some passages out of Hebrews chapter 10 to you that I hope challenge you and encourage you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... Real quick, I know I said I wouldn't do a lot of teaching, and I won't, but I want to show you a picture of what this looks like. This is a, a model of the actual thing. Do we have this? The model of the temple? We are having issues with my, there, that is not it. I've got to say something about what you just saw. 
First of all, my brother Amos has been without a tech guy for a long time now, and we're working on it. And he makes these slides and does a phenomenal job. And this is probably not his fault like it was in a week or two ago. I send him something in Word for literally magical reasons. Sometimes pictures don't show up that I've put in the document. Like a couple weeks ago, I called for a picture that wasn't there. And I was like, Amos, what happened? He's like, man, I showed me. And he's like, it's not there. So I don't know why. It doesn't make sense to me. But I do know why that picture is there. And I wasn't going to use the illustration for time's sake. But now that you've seen a headless chicken, you need to understand... Lord help. <laughs> this is Mike the chicken. Go ahead and put up Mike the chicken. That's actually not Mike's head. They put a different head there for pictures. Mike the chicken is a true story about a chicken who was, had his head cut off. And somehow, miraculously, the exact cut of the knife allowed it to leave most of the jugular in place. And Mike lived without a head for 18 months. True story, it was roughly 100 years ago. There's actually a festival somewhere in the, like South Dakota or something, I can't remember where it is, for Mike the chicken. Because why else would you gather besides for a headless chicken? And the whole point of the illustration was, you've heard about being running around like a chicken with the head cut off, right? Well, Mike literally ran around for 18 months with his head cut off. He was compelled to survive. But what if we weren't just compelled to survive, but to actually live with meaning and purpose? And I decided not to use Mike the Chicken until I called for a picture of the early temple and I got Mike the Chicken. <laughs> and Amos, I thank you because I think we could have all used that moment of laughter. Now, what picture that was supposed to be up there, I'm so far over on time now. The picture that was supposed to be up there was a picture of the early temple. And in the early temple, there was this heavy, thick curtain that separated the holy of holies, where it was said that God lived. And when Jesus was crucified, we are told that literally that veil tore from the top to the bottom. See, if you were gonna tear it, say a, a disciple somehow got into the temple, fought through all the armies, he wanted to rip it, he would have had to rip it from the bottom, but God ripped it from the top to open it up the way and let us know that now we can, everybody can enter into God's presence through Jesus. So with that, let's come back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20. I'm gonna start over <laughs> in verse 19. Here we go. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. So his body is the curtain. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus is our priest let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled, just like the high priest would enter and sprinkle blood into the Holy of Holies on the altar, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, the high priest, before he could go in and sprinkle, he would literally bathe. And it's a picture of baptism that we go into the waters to have our consciences washed clean before God. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let's consider. See, if church is something you come to and you watch, where is somebody else spurring you on toward love and good deeds? Where is somebody else saying, I know this is hard, don't quit, keep going, honor Jesus. 
That happens in circles, not in rows. He says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And the day is the return of Jesus. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed but to those who have faith and are saved. Yeah, I'm clapping that. I'm gonna end with these two questions. I, I have no idea where Mike the chicken has left you in your heart, but I'm praying that the Holy Spirit has convicted you in ways that I can't explain. Here's the two questions I want you to ask yourself. What Christians outside your family are you devoted to in love? You know them by name. It's not that your family isn't also a part of that. They absolutely are. They're your first mission field. But who outside your family are you devoted to? And they know it. They know you're all in with them. And what Christians outside your family are devoted to you in love? It's not that your wife and your kids and your parents don't count. It's that the church is supposed to be a new family. If you don't have an answer to one of those two questions, then you are not yet the church. And I hope that makes you a little bit uncomfortable as you wrestle with, Jesus, how do I love you first and others second? What we're gonna do now is take communion. So I'm gonna ask you to go ahead and pull out your communion. And I left mine backstage. We're gonna take the bread together and the juice together. Let's go ahead and open them up. If you're at home, now's a good time to run to your refrigerator. Thank you so much, sister. Thank you. What a sacrifice. She gave her a purse for me. (laughs) I love this church. say a prayer Father God we welcome you into this place God the sermon did not go at all like I had planned but sometimes your spirit needs to shake us up and break up what we thought was the best way or the right way so that you could say some things that we hadn't planned on saying Heavenly Father would you right now would you unify this body God, we could separate, divide, and argue over face masks or no face masks. We could separate, divide, and argue over Trump or Biden. We could separate and argue over Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter. We could separate and argue over a lot of things, which coffee is our favorite. We could literally run around like chickens with our heads cut off, chasing the next payday, the next woman, the next high, the next purchase. But if maybe, God, if maybe this body right here 
would surrender and gather and submit and say, God, we love you above all else. What do you want to do with us? I wonder what you could do with a body fully surrendered like that. So now, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we take this bread and we take this juice and we thank you for the redemption that is ours in you. Go ahead and take the bread. Let's also go ahead and take the juice. today's message is going to land for you, but listen, if you are not yet connected to the body of Christ somewhere, I want to encourage you both at home and here in the room to reach out. You can do that in the chat online. You can always text our number 565-4911. You can go by our Connect Hub, but please, if you are convicted that you are not a part of the church, don't let one more minute go by. Let's sing to our great God who is worthy of our praise.